And in your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, and a sermon that I've titled, Good News for Those Who Only Deserve Bad News. A little bit of a mouthful, but good news for those who only deserve bad news. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, in a moment we'll look at these verses. During World War II, a mother received the most devastating news. Her only son, who was off fighting in the war, had not only gone missing in action, but was declared dead. And this was the news that every mother dreaded to hear at that time. They all knew it was a possibility when they hugged and kissed their sons goodbye and sent them off to war. But when the knock came on their door and the news was shared, it was no less devastating. But for this one particular mother, something was different because something changed. Sometime after her son was declared dead, the War Department actually found out that her son was not dead, but was in fact alive. And so they asked if a local pastor would be the one to deliver the good news to this grieving mother. Imagine how exciting that would have been for that pastor to deliver that message, a message of hope, a message not just of hope, but your son is not dead, who you thought was dead, but is indeed alive. Walking up to that mother's home, knocking on her front door, standing before her who was devastated not long ago at the thought of her son being death, now being able to tell her that the one who, th who she thought was dead was actually alive. Those are the kind of moments that they, they sometimes bring tears to our eyes when we just hear about them. And that's the kind of news that we would all love to share. It must have been such a, a heartwarming moment as that mother heard that pastor tell her the son that she had been grieving over was actually alive. I imagine that pastor was more than thrilled to deliver such a message to this woman, especially under the circumstances, knowing how much she had been through, knowing that it was the most devastating news she could have received earlier, but knowing that this news would not only lift her spirits, but turn that grief into joy. The message of Jesus Christ is good news. And honestly, who wouldn't want to deliver a message like that? Who wouldn't want to get excited about being the bearer of such wonderful news as Jesus Christ? This is the way we should be as Christians. The same way that pastor was delivering the news that the son that you thought was dead, the son that you probably had a funeral for, the son that you've been grieving over all these days is actually alive. That is wonderful news. The message of Jesus Christ is far better than what that pastor could have ever shared. The good news that we have to share is that Jesus Christ has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered judgment. And he has made it possible for us to live in heaven with him forever. The gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed good news for those who only deserve bad news. It is the best news that a world of lost and dying sinners could ever dream to hear. Now our passage this morning is one of the greatest summaries of the gospel in all of scripture. Your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians 15. Would you follow along as I read the first four verses? 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. 
For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, in this summary of the gospel, there are three wonderful truths about Jesus Christ that we should all be aware of. But before we touch on these truths, I want to point out the bad news so that we can see what makes the gospel good news. Because in order to have good news, there has to be bad news first. Or else it's not, just, it's not good news, it's just news. So let's, let's find out what the bad news is before we can fully identify these truths that are mentioned here about Jesus Christ. And the bad news is that sin has brought darkness and death to this beautiful world that God has created. I want you to look back at what it says here in verse number 3. It says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ, it says, died for our sins. Our sins. The reason Jesus came to earth, the reason he went to the cross and willingly offered himself upon that cross was because of our sin. Your sin, my sin. In Romans 3.23, it tells us, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no gray area. It's clear, black and white. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us are deserving of this good news. None of us are deserving of the gospel for us. There is not a single person who has not been affected by sin. And this is why every single person only deserves bad news. The system of the world teaches that sin is not bad, but it is a problem not by us. And this leads to many people refusing to believe the reality of sin and the consequences of sin. The world has worked overtime to try and water down sin and air condition hell so that it's not as bad as what it really is. So that they strip away all the bad news and they rename it, they repackage it into something nice and a lot more appealing than what the Bible describes it as. They will do everything they can to try and avoid facing the reality of sin, which is that there are temporal as well as eternal consequences for offending a holy God and violating his perfect law. And in doing this, they have taken the bad news out of sin. And thus the gospel, it means nothing to them. Because if there is no bad news, there's no need for good news, right? Because everything is already good. So the gospel means nothing to them because the gospel is only good news to those who think there's bad news. And if you're believing that you're already good, why would you need the gospel? Why do you need to hear something new? If you already believe that you're good and things are already going good, what's the sense in adding something else? If you believe there's nothing wrong in your life, why would you need to make things right? If you believe that you are not sinful, why would you ever need a savior? Over the years, we have watched this world move away from calling sin what it is. And as a result, we have created a world that is steeped in darkness, thinking that it is actually light. All around us are people who are walking in blindness, convinced that they can see. We hear from corrupt business executives, from shady politicians, from philandering athletes who will admit that they've made mistakes or they've made errors or they've had lapses in judgment. They might even confess to weaknesses, but they never call it what it is. Sin. They avoid, avoid that word. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, so they make up all these other words and call it everything else except for what it really is. And no matter how fancy a word we might call it, all we've done is taken an old poison and we've given it a better looking label. It's still the same thing. 
Admitting that we're sinful doesn't make us sit well, though. There's, there's a kind of a, un, not a good feeling in our stomach when we admit that we're sinful. So we do everything we can to avoid that horrible feeling in the pit of our stomach. And as we've redefined and even renamed sin, we also, we've also shifted the blame away from ourselves and blamed everything else and everyone else for the problems in our lives. We're no longer responsible for the issues and the problems in our lives. If there's something wrong with us, it is because we were neglected as a child, or the fact that we had an absentee father, or we had an abusive father, or that we lived through some traumatic event. That has led to us being the way we are today. And all the problems of my life today are not my fault, but I'm just a product of my environment. So I'm innocent. I'm not the problem. Blame my upbringing. We cannot be blamed for our response if this is how we are trained to respond. So years ago, people made it a point to work on society. If we could just make a better environment for everyone, if we can have just everything around everyone be so much better than what it is, the products of that environment will be so much better than what they are today. Seems logical. It seems to make sense. I mean, the only reason that, that people steal is because they were raised in an environment to steal. Right? Well, therefore, the answer should be to you know, get people out of the poor slums. We should have better housing for people. We should offer them better jobs, and then people will no longer steal, right? That takes care of that problem. Well, the world would be rid of criminals, and everyone would become model citizens. Well, it didn't take long to see that this theory proved to be an utter failure. But that hasn't stopped many politicians from pushing the same agenda. They're wanting to tackle the sin problem by giving away money and passing new laws. In their eyes, people are weak, not wicked. They're sick, but they're not sinful. People are ill, not evil. Because the more we dig into their past, the more we can find why they're doing the things they're doing. This is how they were ingrained. This is how they have been raised. So it's not their fault we need to fix the environment that they were raised in. And it's pretty scary to think how far we've wandered from the truth, how far we have ventured away from the light of God's word, how far we've traveled into this darkness. And honestly, as we think about what this world has been like for the past 6,000 plus years since sin entered into the picture, it really isn't surprising that things are the way that they are today. We might act surprised when we hear the news but let's be honest, should it really surprise us that things haven't gotten progressively better, but they've actually gotten progressively worse? The sad part is that the darkness we have come to expect in the world has crept into our churches. Charles Spurgeon once said, It will be a sad day for the church and the world when there is no distinction between the children of God and those of this world. One of the reasons why this world has become so corrupt is because the church has less influence on the world as much as the world has on the church. When I'm in the car, I enjoy listening to some preaching, but what I found is that more and more the messages that I hear on the radio are being preached, and they're being preached from American pulpits, are people making excuses for sin. I heard one pastor say, and it cringed when I heard this, but I heard it. He said, the Apostle Paul's claim in Romans 5.12, and Romans 5.12 states this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So this pastor said that Paul's claim there 
In Romans 5.12, he said, was nonsense. Nonsense. Nonsense that sin and death passed upon all men because of one man's sin, Adam. Nonsense to suggest that we are all sinful. Have you not been alive? Do you not know yourself? And we wonder why the world is the way it is. Sin is our biggest problem. Someone has said that sin is a clenched fist in the face of God. And since sin is rarely spoken of, much less preached about, our view of it is so low. And because our view of sin is so low, so also is our view of the Savior who came to save us from that sin. The more we live thinking so lightly of sin, the more we get upset when the gospel is presented because the gospel is not viewed as good news, but it's viewed as something that stands in the way and interferes with me living in my sinful way. But the Bible makes it crystal clear in Romans 6.23 that says the wages of our sin is death. The verse that I shared a moment ago, Romans 5.12, the one which that pastor described as being nonsense, claims that all have sinned. I have never met a person who was arrogant or brazen enough to say that he's never sinned. Even with how we have gone and, and redefined sin, this would be quite a lofty claim for anyone to make. If you approach someone on the street and ask them, have you ever sinned? Most people will admit to that. And when you consider all that the Bible has to say about the reality of sin, it makes it even crazier. We're told in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So even if you could be perfect in upholding 99.9% of the entire word of God, that 0.1% of an offense would make you guilty of the, all of it. Think of it this way. What makes you a sinner? A sinner is someone who has sinned. It doesn't matter how many times you've sinned or how often you sin. If you've sinned once, you are a sinner. So whether you sin 99% of the time or just 1% of the time, you are still guilty of being a sinner. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of even that one sin is eternal death. So according to Romans 6.23, we are all doomed because we're all sinners. If you're dangling over a fire by a chain of ten links, how many of those links need to break for you to fall in? Not all ten. Just one. Just one. And you're done. You only have to sin once to be a sinner. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you sin more than once because every hand should fly up. But just if we're willing to accept that we've at least sinned once, you realize you only deserve bad news. You realize that there should be a reason to, for you to hear good news. But what we've gone is we've gone and we've categorized sins to make ourselves feel better. <clears throat> Almost convincing ourselves that we've lessened the impact and the consequences of sin by categorizing them a certain way. We have smaller sins and we have white lies. Things that may seem small and inconsequential to us, but are actually an indication of a much greater issue right here in our heart. 
And this is where we've gone off track. We've, we're trying to deal with the problem that man has the wrong way. We think we can solve man's problem by addressing man's actions instead of addressing what man is. And that's a sinner. Our actions are not the problem. Our problem is that we're sinners. A man is not a thief because he steals. He steals because he's a thief. A man is not a liar because he lies. He lies because he is a liar. Jesus declared in Matthew 12, 34, he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Until we admit the reality of the sin and the bad news that it is, the gospel will never be good news to us. So that's the bad news, that we're all doomed, that we only deserve bad news. But now look again at 1 Corinthians 15 and see what makes the gospel so wonderful. Look at the first four verses again. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I want you to notice, first of all, the source of the gospel. The source of the gospel. The source of the gospel is the finished work of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this is why the Apostle Paul says that he delivered this truth to the people of Corinth. He says, first of all. First of all. Because the finished work of Jesus Christ is, first of all. It is of the utmost importance. The bad news is sin. And the gospel, which finds its origins in the person of Jesus Christ and the finished work of Jesus Christ, it deals with man's sin problem head on. The good news is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, it addresses this problem of sin. So let's highlight a few of these areas, how it deals with sin. First of all, the gospel deals with the penalty of sin. The gospel deals with the penalty of sin. We've already mentioned Romans 6.23, which says that the wages of sin is death. But we also see in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse number 4, it says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, we've already all admitted that we're sinners, right? Even if we've only committed one sin. And what does the Bible say in Ezekiel 18, verse 4? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You're just dead men walking. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Sin brings the penalty of death. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, it says, Christ died for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross... He made full and complete atonement for all our sin. We're told in 1 John 2, verse 2, it says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We read in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, literally made you alive with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The Bible very clearly says that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus' death on the cross, it was not an accident. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't even an afterthought. Everything that Jesus did was in direct fulfillment with the word of God. In Paul's day, that was the Old Testament. 
When he says that Jesus Christ, here in verse number 3, died for our sins according to the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died for our sins according to Isaiah 53, verse 6. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. These words were penned 700 years prior to even the birth of Christ. And they were fulfilled perfectly as Jesus came, took upon himself the sin of the world as he went to the cross on our behalf. And we know that full atonement was made for our sins because just before Jesus died, as he was hanging upon that cross, he cried out three words. It is finished. It is finished. Jesus was proudly proclaiming that the sin debt of mankind was paid in full. You see, God is holy, and God's holiness requires that the sin of the world be paid for. He cannot just sweep it under the rug and say, you know what, I'm going to turn a blind eye to that. He cannot just declare us forgiven without exacting a punishment. In Nahum 1 verse 3, it states, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. God's holy standard had been violated. And that sin had to be paid for. And that's exactly where Jesus entered. As he took our place so that we wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell paying the penalty of our sin because that's how long it would have taken us to pay off that penalty. Eternity in hell. Jesus satisfied God's wrath for all sin as he offered himself as the payment for sin. So the gospel deals with the penalty of sin. But second, the gospel deals with the pollution of sin. The gospel deals with the pollution of sin. Our problem is not just that there are punishments deserved for our sin. Our problem is that sin has made a mess of us on the inside. Look again at what it says here in verse number 4, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. A lot of us like to focus on the death and the resurrection of Christ, and we kind of forget about what happened there in the middle, the burial of Christ, why it was that he had to be buried in the tomb. When we hear about the gospel being taught, little emphasis is placed on this aspect. But the burial was just as important. The fact that Christ was buried, it proves that he really died. He was sealed in that tomb for three days and three nights. We know that. He was in every way dead. And the main reason why the burial of Christ is mentioned here is because Christ's burial, it signifies the removal of sin's pollution from us. Jesus paid the penalty of sin at the cross. But when he was buried in the tomb, he took it away from us, the pollution of sin away from us, and buried it with himself in that tomb. He became sin for us that we might receive his righteousness. And that's the message of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It puts it this way. It says, For he, God, hath made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus buried our sin completely out of sight, never for it to pollute us again. And this is what is pictured in the glorious ordinance of baptism. We're buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, under that water, raised to walk in newness of life, with this, which is a picture of, of the removal of sin's pollution from our lives. We're new creatures in Christ 
never polluted by sin again. Third, the gospel deals with the power of sin. The gospel deals with the power of sin. Look again at what it says in verse number four. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The good news of the gospel just keeps getting better. Jesus, it says, rose again the third day. He was triumphant over sin. He broke the back of the devil. Jesus decimated the power of sin when he walked victoriously out of the tomb on that third day. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, day of Pentecost these words. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, he says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. You see what Peter was preaching, he says, you guys went and you crucified their Savior. You went and you buried him in that tomb, but what you didn't realize is that you buried the Son of God and he could not be bound. He could not be contained by the power of sin because he rose triumphantly out of that tomb. He walked victoriously out of the tomb on the third day, proving that the power of sin is no match against our almighty God. Whom God hath raised up, it says, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Though it appeared that Satan would have the last laugh, he was partying for three days, throwing a victory celebration, thinking that he had finally defeated Jesus. It was over. He was victorious. Those celebrations came to a screeching halt. Jesus walked out of that tomb. The power of evil stood no match against the Almighty God. Sin could not keep him down. The grave could not contain him. He came to set men free from the bondage of sin. And his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, and his resurrection all made that possible. And this is why we read of Jesus in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It says of Jesus, it says, He was delivered for our offenses, and he was raised again for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus showed us that God was fully satisfied with the sacrifice and the offering that Jesus gave of himself. And let's just be clear that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected once. He will never die again because his once-for-all sacrifice was sufficient for all sin. He rose from the grave. He lives forever. Therefore, we are never done with Jesus. You may deny and reject Jesus, but you will still have to face him in judgment one day. Or you can trust him as your Savior and you can enjoy the blessed fellowship that comes in his presence. That is what the gospel is all about. That is indeed good news for those who only deserve bad news. So we've looked at the source of the gospel, but secondly, I'd like you to consider the force of the gospel. The force of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has a powerful source that does something supernatural to all those who believe in it. An unbelieving anthropologist was once visiting a primitive tribe in the jungles of Asia to whom missionaries had previously brought the gospel. The anthropologist was talking to the chief of the tribe and he was questioning him as to whether or not the message of Christ could possibly have such a strong impact on people or whether it was even necessary for them at all. And the chief, he strongly disagreed with this man, and he said that the gospel had definitely made a significant impact on all of the people there. And the man said, well, how do you know that? 
The man said, the chief replied, he said, if we were not Christians, we would have eaten you by now. <laughs> Praise the Lord for the force of the gospel that can change violent warriors into worshipers. As we consider the force of the gospel, there are at least three ways that make its power felt. First, we see the saving force of the gospel. Look again at what we're told here in verse number 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, the saving force of the gospel. It says, By which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. By which also ye are saved. I don't care what you've been taught. There is no other way to be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is that it has the power to save anyone who believes in it. As long as a man is alive and out of hell, he has the opportunity to be saved. Charles Spurgeon, he described the gospel this way. He said, the gospel is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Our job as Christians is to proclaim the truth of Christ's saving power. Not to alter it, not to water it down, not to twist it. To make it clearly known. The power of the gospel rests not in our ability to proclaim it, praise the Lord for that, but in the power of Christ who made it. Amen. The saving force of the gospel. But secondly, notice the sanctifying force of the gospel. Sanctification is this process by which God sets us apart for himself and prepares us for future glory. It's a process that he begins the very moment you're saved. It could be defined as the power of Christ to keep you saved. And this idea is expressed here in verse number two. It says, by which also ye are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves us from the penalty of sin. Once we are saved, it keeps us from the power of sin. And it eventually delivers us into the presence of God in heaven, where we will be forever freed from the presence of sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just good news for one moment of your life. It is continually working throughout your entire life. The moment you're saved, God starts the sanctification process in you where he keeps you saved and is daily molding you into the image of his son until you're eventually received into the glories of heaven. That is the active work of sanctification. In Philippians 1 verse 6, it states this. It says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The same truth of sanctification is expressed in wonderful detail also in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. It says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of a son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It is the sanctifying force of the gospel that allows us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. Third, we see the stabilizing force of the gospel. The stabilizing force of the gospel. Look back at verse number 1 here in 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand. Wherein ye stand. The stabilizing force of the gospel. The gospel is good news that we can be saved. It is good news that we can be saved and know that we're saved. It is good news that we can be saved and know that we will never lose our salvation. This aspect of eternal security, which, by the way, we'll be speaking about tonight. This aspect of eternal security is what the Apostle Paul is referring to here in verse number 1. Again, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. 
You're secure. You're stable on this footing because it's not your own power that you're standing on, but the power of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings the stabilizing force. When Christ saves you, it's not your grip on Christ that keeps you saved. But his grip on you. If salvation were up to you and me to maintain and to keep, we would have squandered it in less than five minutes. The good news is that if you're saved, you are saved and you're being kept saved by the grace and power of God. You can stand, it says, and you can stand assured that if you're saved, that is never going to be lost. Because not one that has ever come to him has ever been lost. You may tremble on the rock of Christ, but the rock will never tremble beneath you. And this is the stabilizing force of that gospel. We've looked at the source of the gospel. We've looked at the force of the gospel. But third, I want you to consider the course of the gospel. The course of the gospel. This is the reason that I love being a preacher of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ that extends to all people everywhere, addressing the greatest problem that mankind will ever face. No matter where you look across this world, the gospel extends to all people. No matter where they are or what they've done, if they trust in Jesus Christ, he will save them from their sins. In Romans 10, verses 11 through 13, it states, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Apostle Paul makes this truth crystal clear. As he mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He calls himself the worst sinner in the world. The worst sinner in the world. And he says that if God can save me, there is hope for everyone else. The gospel, he says, extends to all people everywhere. And the beauty of the gospel of Christ is that there is no problem that it does not address. Because every human problem, it falls under one of three categories. Sin, sorrow, and death. Trace every problem and they fall into one of these three categories. The gospel is the only answer. It is the only answer to sin as it offers full and complete atonement and a home in heaven with God. The gospel is the only answer for sorrow. For even though we may weep, Christians are promised that sorrow shall not endure but shall be eventually turned into joy. And the gospel is the only answer for death. For Jesus declared in John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever believeth and liveth in me shall never die. Someone has ima imagined a little procession of caterpillars crawling around, along the gr ground, very sad, carrying the cocoon in which their brother used to live. And above this little procession was flying a beautiful butterfly. The same caterpillar that they were mourning down below had been changed into this beautiful butterfly, now free, now complete, enjoying what he was made to be. This is the believer's destiny because of the gospel of Christ. What We have truly nothing to fear because when we're in Christ... We are as secure today as we shall be a million years from now in heaven. The gospel is truly good news unlike any other. Good news to those who only deserve bad news. 
Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we're thankful to be reminded of this message of the gospel. And Lord, while we just, just scratch the surface here of what the gospel is and what it means to us, Lord, I'm thankful for what we were able to focus on here this evening or this, this morning and see, Lord, the truth that there is for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that, Lord, this message of the gospel is something so precious, something so life-changing, that his power is never lost on us. And, Lord, that we would have this desire, I pray, to go and to share this wonderful truth to those around us. I'm thankful, Lord, that we have a solid rock upon which we can stand. Lord, one that is not dependent upon our strength and our intellect, but one that is completely rooted and grounded in your Son, Jesus Christ, who never falters, who never wavers, but is always stable upon which we can stand. We love you, and Lord, we're just so thankful that you have first loved us and given us this wonderful opportunity to be a recipient of the power and the blessings of this wonderful gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.